Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. This is Dan Hambender. We are back with the Narratives in Cardiology series designed to promote diversity and inclusion in cardiology because our differences make us stronger. I am here with Dr. Teodora Donison, Cardio Nerds Academy Chief, resident at Beaumont Hospital and soon to be fellow at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Gerlene Carr, intern at Brigham and Women's Hospital and director of the Cardio Nerds Internship and student doctor Adriana Maris at Texas Tech University Health Science Center and Cardio Nerds Academy intern. Join us as Air Force Cardio Nerds descends into Rochester, Minnesota to discuss structural heart disease and Latinx representation in cardiology with Dr. Myra Guerrero. But before we touch down, we should definitely touch upon the weather today. And I'm happy to say that the winter months are behind us. Indeed, the weather today in Minnesota is quite toasty with a high of 91. There are a few bit of clouds out, but hopefully we won't see any rain. But enough about the weather and enough about the plane. Let's set this beautiful plane down. And Teodora, why don't we jump right to it? Such an honor to welcome Dr. Myra Guerrero to represent Minnesota ACC chapter for the Narratives in Cardiology series. Dr. Guerrero is an interventional cardiologist and professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic, as well as the associate program director for the Cardiology Fellowship. She went to medical school in Mexico and then moved to Chicago, where she completed both her internal medicine residency and cardiology fellowship, followed by interventional cardiology fellowship at William Beaumont Hospital in Michigan. After completing her training, she went on to establish a structural heart disease program at Henry Ford Hospital and also served as the director of cardiac structural interventions at Evanston Hospital. Dr. Guerrero is a leader in structural heart interventions and is a strong advocate for addressing heart disease in women globally. I had the opportunity to interact with Dr. Guerrero during their interview season, and she's been an amazing role model for me personally. Welcome to the Cardio Nurse, Dr. Guerrero. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It's really an honor for me and I'm very excited. And what makes it more special is that I actually get to work with you, Dr. Theodora Donison, who will be a fellow at Mayo Clinic in a few days. So very proud to say that. So thank you. Thank you very much. This is starting off as an amazing collaboration for us together, Dr. Guerrero. And thanks to the Cardioners for this. Dr. Guerrero, as has already been said, it's such a pleasure to help you. Personally, it's an honor for me to be part of this webinar and to meet you virtually and to be able to learn about your path and your work as a Latinx uh, woman interventional cardiologist in the field of structural heart intervention. We know that you are a pioneer in structural heart intervention and have served as a principal investigator for multiple clinical trials in the field of transcatheter mitral valve replacement. As a medical student interested in cardiology and research, it's been so inspiring to see someone like me, a woman in Latinx, to be on the center stage presenting late-breaking clinical trials in interventional cardiology. And so to start up our discussion, I would like to ask, what drew you to the field of structural heart disease and how have your research interests developed over the years? Thank you very much. I had the honor of being an interventional fellow in the room, in the cath lab at William Beaumont Hospital when the first ever was done in the United States. That was the first ever in the United States. Yes, still right at your hospital. 
It was April of 2005. Now, that moment was extremely important for me because I didn't know Taver existed. If you go back to 2005, there was no such a thing as Taver, as, uh, you know, as, even as a known therapy. And we, as fellows, were not told that the case was going on. We were not part of the preparation. So I come that day to the cath lab and I see a lot of people coming from friends. So the very same Alan Crevier came to Proctor, Dr. O'Neill to do the first Taver. And there are no words to describe the moment when I saw the tavern valve being deployed. You know, I understood without words. I did not need an explanation. I just saw it with my eyes, what was happening. And there are no words to describe, you know, how excited I was to see that. I could see that it would change the world and literally that changed the world. So that moment, that less than one minute moment, that moment I knew I wanted to dedicate the rest of my career to help develop um, transcatheter options to replace valves, not just aortic, the other valves. So if you can do that for the aortic valve, you can do that for any valve. So my life has few crucial moments that defined what I wanted to do next. So that less than one minute moment was one of them. And then you asked me, how did my research um, interests develop? I think it all starts with a, an unmet clinical need, just like TAVR. It was developed to an unmet clinical need. And my research interest then evolved or switched to calcific mitral stenosis or mitral annular calcification. So it all started with an unmet clinical need. I had several patients who were um, severely symptomatic from significant mitral valve disease in the setting of severe mitral annular calcification, and they did not have the option of surgery because they were not considered surgical candidates. To make a long story short, there was that one need. And then I thought if this device works for a aortic valve, then maybe the tabard valve can work for a very calcified mitral valve. So that's how it started. And the rest, it has been just basically working towards trying to find a way how to fix the, the valve. And um, the more you learn, the more you learn that you don't know many things. And then one question leads to another one. And then you may find a way to do it and it's successful. But you encounter complications in the process, like LVOT obstruction, for example. Then you need to work towards ways to prevent it or treat it. And it's just one thing after the other one. And it's, I think, the joy of finding something and that, that works, something that can help a patient that keeps you going. I have spent so, so many hours analyzing CT scans and the many hours that, that you invest in the end based off when you find something that, for example, the CT max score that you can actually predict bad embolization and by being able to do that, prevent uh, that catastrophic complication. So it's just, I think, an unmet need, your interest in finding a way how to fix it and, and the drive to wanting to know more. And then that's it. The rest of it is just, you just work. Dr. Guerrero, just so inspiring to hear about your journey from first seeing the first Taver valve being deployed to now being so immersed in the research in the field. And I can really feel your passion and enthusiasm for the fields by the way you describe your work, both clinical and research. And I really liked how you described research being developed from an unmet clinical need and how we merged those two things, which you role model so well for us, both the clinical aspects and the research realm. I also saw that you were a part of the Lancet Commission recently that was led by 17 experts from 11 countries that was specifically focused on reducing the worldwide burden of cardiovascular disease in women by 2030. And this was a very thorough report that was published last year, as well as presented at 
ACC21 that reviewed the global disease burden of cardiovascular disease in women, discussed risk factors specific to women, and then also provided details about diseases based on their unique regional context, along with outlining actual recommendations. As someone who's interested in cardiovascular disease in women specifically, I was really interested in learning about your experience working on this commission. And could you please summarize for us the main takeaways related to structural heart disease in women and valve care in the global setting? Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was a um, very rewarding experience for me. We learned so much and we worked together with um, representatives from around the world. Regarding structural, there are a few things that got my attention. So one, we know that heart disease is a leading cause of, of death you know, for women and, and everybody. However, the awareness that heart disease is the leading cause of death among women had declined in the last one decade. So it should not be that way. It should go in the opposite direction. There should be more awareness. And when you go to valve disease awareness, that was one of the lowest. So there were many more women worried about cancer, about dementia, about other problems. But valvular disease, that was like less than 3%. And for me, it's like, why is it that low? So we do need to work on, on awareness, definitely. Another one is the difference in outcomes. For example, women have higher mortality than men when they undergo surgical aortic or mitral uh, interventions. So they have higher mortality. And that can be multifactorial, but an important reason is their risk profile is higher. They present uh, with the aortic at an older age and with many comorbidities. So the risk is higher. However, they do well when they are treated with transcatheter options, particularly with TAVR. So in my humble opinion, I think that we must develop reliable transcatheter options to treat with the less invasive approaches. But the problem is that despite knowing that women are less likely to be enrolled in clinical trials. And we do need to facilitate enrollment because that's how we generate knowledge that we can uh, apply to women. So the several disadvantages for women within valvular disease specifically. So that was the second one. Then the third one is that women uh, with symptomatic severe aortic stenosis were found to be at least in one trial less likely to be referred for aortic valve intervention than men. And in that study, they also found that, that black patients also were less likely to be referred. So just if, if they were, if you happen to be a woman or a black patient with symptomatic severe aortic stenosis, the chances of being referred for therapy were lower. Once women were referred for therapy, then yes, more were treated with TAVR, thank God. But uh, the key is that they need to be referred more. So there may be multiple factors playing a role, but that there's an undertreated population another unmet clinical need. And there may be many factors, I understand. But one of it, I think uh, there could be some referral biases among the healthcare providers that perhaps decrease the referring or the chances of uh, a woman being referred for therapy. So we do need to work on those patterns or referral bias that may exist. So that leads me to the next one, which is connected. Because even though there may be many factors, when we talk about referral bias, I wonder if the lack of enough women cardiologists may be playing a role. There's very few, less than 10% of the interventional cardiologists in the United States are women. And um, specifically, less than 3% of the TAVR operators are women. Among those, 
is less than 1.5% interventional cardiologists because at 3%, there are some surgeons. And interestingly, there are more women surgeons doing TAVR than female interventional cardiologists doing TAVR. So I wonder if the lack of representation of women in the interventional cardiology field, and particularly structural interventions, may be playing a role in having women under treated in this, in this area. So those are findings that I think we all can do something to improve that. And um, that's my hope and my mission to try to recruit more of you so that you can help us treat more patients. Dr. Guerrero, thank you so much for discussing the, these very important concerns that we actually see in our daily practice. Hopefully spreading the word about these problems will help us address cardiac and valve disease in women earlier. And with your help, encouraging more women in cardiology and future women in cardiology will, will for sure help us address this problem further. Now I'd like to shift the discussion a bit uh, and learn more about your personal journey that has led you to this stage of your career. Many of us are immigrants or children of immigrants, and there are many unique challenges that come with that. Could you share with us your experience moving from Mexico to the United States and how you navigated different stages of your career as an international medical graduate? Yeah, so it was an adventure that I would not change that for anything in my life. It was, it was really, truly an adventure. So my husband and I got married when we finished medical school. And we took our exams, we applied, and then I got matched in Chicago. We basically literally just took our old car. We loaded the old car with a few belongings that we had. And we took it to church to get it blessed by the priest because it was so old that I wasn't sure that it would last enough to arrive to Chicago. We had 238,000 miles, no air conditioner. So we did not know anybody in Chicago. We had a few dollars in our pocket, no credit card, no cell phone. So can you imagine that? <laughs> so thank God we had the blessing from the priest. Uh, and we, we did not have any problems during that trip, but it was an adventure that I still remember. We even slept in the car one night because we didn't have enough money and we wanted to save the money for whatever could be needed in Chicago. And I look back and I, don't remember suffering. I remember being so happy. We didn't have many things, uh, but we had each other and we both had a dream and that's all that mattered. I remember being very happy and arriving to Chicago and doing uh, my training and all that. It was just a blessing to me. So that beginning, I would not change that for anything in my life because that's what makes me appreciate more the real honor and privilege that I have, which is to get to do what I like the most, which is fix hearts. And because it wasn't easy, it just makes it more enjoyable. And it just, adversity helps you appreciate even more. And I could tell you many, many more stories, but, you know, maybe I can pause and we can continue later if we have time. But that's how we came to the United States. And then the rest of it was just work hard, give your best. And in the end, your work will speak for itself. So don't be afraid, just work hard and you'll be able to achieve anything you want. Wow, Dr. Carrero, just so inspiring to hear your personal story and how beautifully you describe everything from even the challenges that you faced during this journey. And I really liked that one statement you said, adversity really helps you appreciate more. I think that's definitely something I'll remember from this recording. 
And while you've been at Mayo Clinic, you've served as the co-chair of the Department of Diversity and Inclusion as well. And you touched upon this earlier in the recording that women continue to remain underrepresented in the fields of cardiology, particularly when it comes to interventional cardiology, where only around 8% of interventional cardiologists are women and only 4.2% of cardiologists are Latinx. And this number gets even smaller for Latinx women cardiologists and Latinx women interventional cardiologists. And with your experience as chair of the Department of Diversity and Inclusion, what are your thoughts on how to work towards increasing diversity in this specialty? And then what actions need to be taken at specifically the institutional level? That's, that's a very difficult question. And that's the problem that we all have. By the way, this problem is not just present in the United States. This is a global problem of uh, lack of women representation in, in interventional cardiology. And perhaps it's even more pronounced in other countries. So we do have a global crisis, I think. But I think there are several things that uh, need to be done and should be done. One is to work in the pipeline. And by pipeline, I'm talking like all types of levels. So obviously within the cardiology fellowship, we need to work at providing mentorship to cardiology fellows to get into the interventional cardiology field. But it all starts even before. So even in medical school to provide mentorship for women and underrepresented minorities and help them achieve their goals. And, and if their goal is to become a cardiologist, then even better for us because we need your help. But you, we have to go even beyond that earlier in life, uh, high school, uh, middle school, and even starts at home with how we uh, teach our young children about the opportunities that they will have and how they need to take them and how, you know, they can achieve anything that they want. So the pipeline at every single level, I think that's, that's one important thing. And then there are responsibilities, I think, for institutions. Um, for example, I think they do need to provide uh, training to decrease unconscious biases that may exist. Also improve the conditions of the workplace by facilitating perhaps a little bit of flexibility in, in their schedules and not make them so rigid, provide maternity and paternity leave, uh, lactation rooms, for example. This is particularly more relevant for trainees because of their age, but it also applies to some, some faculty in their earlier careers that, you know, where, where they may need that support. The other thing is that we have to distribute leadership opportunities to achieve equity in leadership. So the, the institutions have responsibilities and making sure that the opportunities are there. The one way of doing that is establishing a diversity and inclusion committee to basically create a culture of inclusion and promote equity in the workplace. So each institution should have that. And then this is talking about hospitals, but it goes beyond that. For example, I think other organizations like, for example, APA or industry or societies also need to be accountable and they should consider maybe creating a diversity and inclusion committee to ensure women representation in clinical trial leadership in publications, as well as enrollment of women patients in clinical trials. So it goes at many levels and I think we all are in this together and we all need to work, you know, towards that. It's going to take a lot of time. One depressing thing for me is that I look back at my last 20 years. And very little progress has been made. So we keep talking about the same thing and the same thing and, and not much has happened. I'm fortunate that I have received opportunities and I was able to achieve my dreams and more, than, actually more than I could ever dream of, like literally. 
I never in my wildest dreams, I thought I was going to be at the Mayo Clinic. Just remember me, picture me in a, in a what is it, a 78? Yeah, the car was a 78 car, super old, no money, no nothing. And coming from a different country and then end up where I am. So I'm very fortunate to have had the opportunities that I have. But now it's our, my responsibility and the responsibility of many to make sure that we create those opportunities and that we provide mentorship for others who may want to follow the same steps into this field. Dr. Guerrero, there's so much to learn from the few minutes of discussion that we have had so far. And I find it interesting how you indicate that the issue of the lack of inclusion of minorities in cardiology is a global issue. Also, I really like how you mentioned that our passion for a particular field starts at home, because I know many of us can relate to this. And so returning to the topic of diversity in cardiology, there has been an increase in the number of female cardiologists over the year, yet women and Latinx faculty continue to be disproportionately underrepresented in leadership roles in academia and research. And so according to the 2020 AAMC data, only 0.7% of full professors in internal medicine are Latinx women. This number does not even encapsulate the low representation specifically within the field of cardiology. And so, Dr. Guerrero, what has been your personal experience traversing your path to becoming a national leader of multiple clinical trials and professor of medicine, including being co-chair of the Diversity Inclusion Task Force Mayo Clinic? And also, what role has mentorship played in your journey? Thank you. It has not been easy. I did encounter many barriers and people who did not want to support or comments that were less than encouraging. Coming from a program director when I was applying to interventional cardiology that said, yeah, I would like to take you in my program, but um, I can't because you're Mexican. And another comment, once I got to a fellowship and a comment from another attending who said, good, welcome to our program. Just don't get pregnant. I could tell you so many more. So those are comments that I can say, but there were so many others that cannot be said. What I learned is that I get angry. It's normal to have emotions. But what I learned is to transform my anger into something good. I think it was clear to me that there were many people who did not want to support me. Or actually some, they resented or, or I don't know, like they didn't want me to succeed or they would probably be happy if I felt. But after that, what I learned to do is basically transform anger and do something good for me. So when I knew that no one else was going to do something for me, instead of being angry and not do anything about it, I would use that energy and do something good. Think of a project. I like research. That's all I think about. But uh, think of another project or write a paper or do something good for your career, because it's obvious that those people were not, they were not going to do that for me. So that's, that's what I did. I think it helped me channel that energy and transform that into something good. I just didn't know what else to do with that. Like I did not want to allow any, even a drop of depression or fear. Oh no, don't be afraid of anything. Uh, don't, don't get sad. Things happen for a reason. And I choose to just get angry in a situation of injustice and then use that anger to do something good. So that's how I navigated the difficult times. And then you ask about the role of mentorship. 
That's super important, extremely important. There have been few key people in, in my career who have been instrumental. And obviously we're talking about career and, and school and all that. Uh, I don't want to forget about the real mentors in early in my life who are my family members, my mom and my two grandmothers who were very important mentors to me in a different way. They taught me about values and not be afraid and work hard and believe and, and, and all those things. But going to uh, mentorship during school or your career, there were very few key people and not all of them were doctors. Actually, one of the most important people during my early training in high school, actually, was my drama teacher in high school, who he insisted that the word impossible should be removed from the dictionary. And he made sure that his students, like that all of us knew that we could achieve anything we wanted. And I think that was super important during my teenage years, because one day I said, oh, no, I, I, I can't do this. And he said, no, my child, he said, don't you ever tell me that you can't. You don't know yet. That's a different story. But I know you can. And I need you to know that you can. So don't tell me that anything is impossible. If you see the word impossible in a book, just rip the page or throw the book because it's, it's false. That's not true. So I think that was very important. Something so simple that he stayed in my mind. And, and then that's, that's true. We should not limit ourselves. But anyway, so now moving into medicine, definitely there were very important people who opened the door and gave me a hand and helped me. And I don't know how I could have done what I have done if it wasn't for someone who believed in me and in my projects and supported me. And actually, William Bomber Hospital, that experience there was super important to me. Cindy Grimes was there. She was my program director and Bill O'Neill. And they both uh, gave me a chance. They, they believed in me and they supported my research at the time during fellowship. And then Bill later on, when he came to Henry Ford, also supported my crazy idea of doing transcatheter mitral replacement and mitral annual classification. So it's important that we connect with mentors that can support our ideas and help us. Now, I humbly realized that I would never, ever be able to pay back all the support that I received from them. But I truly, sincerely hope that I can pay it forward. And if I can help a little tiny bit someone, I think that would be very rewarding to me because I owe these many mentors so much. And I know they don't need my help and I can't pay them back. So. I think we all will encounter mentors, so we have help from mentors. But it's important that even you at your young age start thinking on how to pay it forward because that's how it works. Dr. Guerrero, this was such a wonderful uh, answer to our question. Uh, I really loved how you mentioned that you focus to transform your anger into something good. It does sometimes feel that women in cardiology and maybe even uh, international medical graduates have to prove themselves more. I love to hear how you've channeled your emotions into improving patient care and trying to push the field further. I feel like we all can learn from your experience. And I've also loved to hear about your thoughts about mentorship and how you personally dealt with imposter syndrome, how you personally were told that. Don't tell me you can't. You just don't know yet. I'm going to remember this word. Thank you for sharing this with us. I remember coming across a beautiful picture of you and your family, your husband and kids on Twitter. Uh, and it said something along the lines of, uh, you can be a busy interventional cardiologist and have a family. You're so remarkable in everything you do, Dr. Guerrero. You've been a trailblazer in the field of structural heart disease. 
both clinically and in the research realm. We are also the mom of two grown boys. As a new mom myself, I've been working on optimizing work-life harmony. I would love to hear about your experiences and how you've integrated time with family with your role as a busy academic interventional cardiologist. And what advice do you have for trainees considering a career in interventional cardiology? Thank you. I had to give credit to my husband. I really give all the credit to him. I think your life partner, we have to be very careful in choosing your life partner. It has to be somebody who understands you and who supports you. And it's a team, it's teamwork at home. It's not easy, but I think you have to work at that to make it work. It's like everything. You have to invest time and, and try to prioritize. I don't know if I was the best mother. And many times I question, am I doing the right thing? I'm, I'm here and my kids are... My youngest one went to daycare at Woman Woman uh, Hospital. So I, I remember dropping him like at 6.30 a.m. so I can be in the cab lab at 7 a.m. And many times I question, am I doing the right thing? Are they going to be okay? But that now I look at them and I think what we do also in our professional life, we're, we're also role models for them. And now my oldest son is a second year medical student at the University of Illinois in Chicago and the Younger one is doing his undergrad year at the University of Chicago. So then I think maybe I wasn't so bad. I missed some uh, soccer games, I had to say. It's hard to make it to the soccer games because I don't know why they make it so early in the day. I was able to make it to all or, or at least most of the orchestra concerts because those were in the evening. So no doubt that I missed uh, moments that I wish I could have been there. But you cannot have everything or everything at the same time. And in the end, if you work together with your partner and your kids and they know what you're doing, then it may be not so bad for them, actually. They know that you're helping people and I think, I think it can be done. And then advice for trainees. I think the number one advice that I would say is don't wait too long to have kids because sometimes I hear I'm going to wait until, I don't know, until I finish fellowship or until I finish my first two years of my job. There's never a perfect time, you know, to, to be a, a parent. I would say that once a decision is, is made and once you decide to start a family, don't put a pause in your personal life or your career because there's no need to. You can merge both and then form a family and then still continue your training or work. So the, you don't need to sacrifice your personal life or put a pause that could have a significant impact in your health later on. So. For the many of you who may be listening, I think that would be the one advice I would give. Don't wait. You decide, I'm going to create a family, then just start and enjoy it and just find time to spend time with kids. They grow so fast. People told me that's the one thing I regret. I probably didn't realize how fast they're going to grow. They're going to grow way faster than you think. So any moment, any minute that you can squeeze in your life to spend time with them, use it because um, they grow so fast and then they go to college very soon, sooner than you want. Well, Dr. Guerrero, that was beautiful. And I'll say that as an interventional fellow, as a father and as a son of immigrants, so much of what you said, a lot of what you have said has resonated, I think with all of us. But there was something that you uh, talked about that really struck a chord uh, for me. And it was about the story of how you immigrated with your husband. And it made me think about my own parents. So I just want to share a little bit. Mom and dad, uh, are doctors, and they were essentially in the middle of their career when they decided to uproot themselves and move to America, really just for me and my two older sisters. And because of all the responsibilities that they had back home, they hadn't saved up that much money. 
So thankfully, dad got residency. Uh, he came a year before. And then mom, she had a J visa. And so it was really challenging for her. And she didn't get any interviews. And we asked for a lot of help and advice. And finally, she got one interview. Okay, so this was like the make it or break it interview that if it worked out, awesome. If it didn't work out, we were going to pack our bags and go back home. And not having a lot of resources, they really they just didn't spend that much money on themselves. Like they would be very frugal with clothes, with food, with everything except for my birthday gifts. So they decided, okay, like this was the time to go all out. We have to make a good impression. So they went to maybe Macy's and they bought a business suit. In retrospect, I don't know, maybe it was $30, but for them, it was so expensive at the time. And just like how you went to the church to bless the car, we went to a Hindu temple in Jackson Heights to pray for a good outcome. And it was very nice. It was lovely. We prayed. We got, but it was just, it was very uplifting. I remember this actually. I was young, but I remember this. And we got back to the car and our trunk was broken into and the suit was gone. Whoa. <laughs> and like in retrospect, it's funny, but I remember at the time they were just devastated because this was like a huge investment in her career that they, they were making at the time. So I just think that, my gosh, they, they did so much so that I could be here today. And it's the same case for, I think, all of our parents. And you did that for your kids. And I think the measure of success is not where you are, but it's how far you've gone. And by that metric, you're a giant among giants. And I think the, the last brief story I'll tell you is when you were thinking about, oh my gosh, I have a meeting at 6.30 or whatever. I wasn't there for the kids. I remember when my mom used to study for her step exams. I was in third or fourth grade at the time. She called her classmate crying. She says, I should be a mom right now. Like I'm studying for step two. What am I doing? And she said, Kieran, just remember this. Like the example that you have, you're making for your son is something you can never teach him. Like you are a living role model for him. And I don't remember this. Obviously, she, I wasn't there, but, but she told me that. And, and that's what I, I'm thinking about when you said that I'm a role model for my kids. And this is what they're doing right now. They're doing so well. It's just um, incredible. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you for parenting advice because I saw what my parents went through. And I'm seeing what like Tio and Adriana and, and so many of uh, these guys are going through. But like my kids didn't see that. My kids didn't see what my parents went through. Like how did you teach your kids the value of just everything you went through to be where you are so that they can turn into who they are today and doing so well? We probably bore them to death by telling them the story of what happened to us and all the challenges that we went through. And they know the story very well. We take them very often back home. We took them to see our elementary school, our middle school, high school, medical school, like all those places so that they could see where we come from and our families to, to see them and insisted that they learn Spanish so they can talk to them. And I hope that they appreciate uh, where they come from and the culture. And we tell them how fortunate they are. I do worry, I have to say that maybe by life not being so challenging for them with less adversity. I wonder if they would enjoy their successes as much as my husband and I. And uh, we never know, you know, there's no way to measure that. But that would be one of the worries that I may have for more fortunate generations that when everything is given to them and they don't have to work as hard as some others had to work for something, they may not enjoy it. Now, let me just share one hope that I have in talking about statistics. I hope that my son chooses to be a cardiologist and then by doing that, I increase by point, I don't know, 1% the proportion of Latino cardiologists in, in the U.S. But we're, we're fighting. We're, this is a battle between my husband and I. He's trying to convince him to do pulmonary critical care. That's what my husband is. 
he had Mayo and I tried to convince him to do cardiologist. And he said one day, I'm going to make a non-binding statement. He said, I have to admit cardiology is really cool. I'm keeping my hopes high that uh, maybe he'll be a cardiologist. And imagine if he, is, if he does interventional cardiologist, then yeah, that would be make, make me very happy. But at least he's already in medical school. He's enjoying, I think this is the best job that one can have in the world being a doctor. It's like the most awesome thing. And the fact that both my kids want to be doctors and it makes me very happy. So I think uh, they will be happy in that profession. And, and it makes me think that maybe what my husband and I did, it wasn't too bad. And I must say that as cardiologists, we're a little bit biased, but whatever he chooses, if you've done the hard work and, and you've given him an incredible gift um, that my parents gave me and it's just it's really amazing. And I'm sure he sees that. Yeah. And I'll add that Cardiner is actually doing a multi-part critical care series. So there is some way that you and your husband could both win in this uh, fight. <laughs> so we're very hopeful. This has been such a fabulous discussion and it has been such a joy for me and definitely I'm going to speak for both of us to see the inspired faces of Tio Gerlin and Adriana today as you shared so much of your personal story and passion for your craft and leadership in the field. And on a personal note, just like like literally today, shortly before this webinar, my co-fellow Jackie Latina and I, along with our attending Dr. Ronnie Hassan and the broader structural team performed a TMVR, which I've been calling Timver and Amin has been making fun of me. But you have been such a pioneer in this field. And we were talking about your work just earlier today. You shared the story of how you were in the room with Dr. Cripier during the first TAVR deployment in the US. And yes, you did truly witness history. But what I find so inspiring from that story is that you didn't just witness history, you picked up the mantle and ran with it to bring the field even further, taking us to places that we could never have imagined and really bringing options for patients who did not have any options before that. So we're so grateful for all of your life-saving contributions to the patients. And I, I just to reiterate, the timing of this episode recording could not have been more perfect from my standpoint. And I know that you had mentioned earlier about paying it forward. I can definitely say that you've paid your mentors forward a million times over and have inspired all of us today and really all of us around the world. So thank you so much for being here with us tonight. No, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Oh my God, I'm so humble. Thank you. <laughs> Before we close the recording, I'd love to put one thing to rest. Dan called me earlier today, so excited. He's like, I'm it. I'm going to do my first timber. And I said, your first what? He said, timber. <laughs> and I thought he was saying timber when the tree falls. So I was like, is this some new like electrocautery, like lamp <laughs> type of thing, timber? I don't understand. It's a TMVR. I was like, oh, TMVR. So Dr. Guerrero, as the expert, is, do you pronounce it Timber or TMVR? TMVR. Thank uh, you. <laughs> Which you consider changing. <laughs> in Batman Mac, people, but we abbreviate V-I-M-A-C. Some people call it VMAC, and I'm like, no, I mean, it's Batman Mac. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's Thank okay you. to abbreviate and put the letters, but I think it's uh, TMVR. That's my license plate, you know that? Oh, oh. Really? <laughs> yeah, and I'm considering, uh, if, if there's time, I'll tell you a little bit. Did you know that mitral annual classification ICD code does not exist? So you go on Epic and, and try to find mitral annual classification. It did not exist. I've been working for two, the last two years with the people who develop ICD codes at the CDC. And it was just announced, uh, well, at least on the website, that it got approved. So now we have an ICD code for Mac is I-34.81. So my coworkers at work, they make jokes. They say, are you, are you going to change your license plate from TMVR to I-34.81? 
and or and they said I said well, you know it's hard to uh, let go of TNVR. They said well then you should get another card and so they can get the other license plate. So uh, we'll see if I change the license plate. I don't need another card. I love that. <laughs>